Well, we're gonna get going here. Uh, welcome to Magic Equals the Metaphysics of the Author, if that's not what you wanted to be in. We're so glad that you picked the wrong panel and uh, are gonna be here with us. So, um, this is Alex uh, Schwartzman. He's the author of over 100 short stories published in Nature, Analog, Strange Horizons, Fireside, many other venues. The winner of the 2014 WSFA Small Press Award for Short Fiction and uh, two-time Canopus? Canopus. Canopus, not Cannabis. <laughs> Although, well, yeah. wrong yeah. award. Well, Can yeah. Cannabis would be something else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's the editor of Future Science Fiction Digest, the curator of Unidentified Funny Objects anthology series as well as the editor of over a dozen anthologies you can see the rest of his bio on the site and then we have carol ann maletti on the other side of the table uh, she lives and works as a nurse midwife in new york city thus explaining her fascination with all things paranormal or urban fantasy and space opera uh, the unfinished business series uh, carol's cape cod paranormal romance novels were published by soulmate urban fantasies set in the world of carol's novels have been featured in uh, haunted tin tales of ghosts seers tin tales of clairvoyance beltane tin tales of witchcraft and bites tin tales of vampires and then Ken Altabev, uh, right over there, as a SFWA member, Ken Short Fiction has appeared in uh, FNSF as well as Interzone, Daily Science Fiction, BuzzMag, Abyss, Apex, uh, Perihelion, etc. His stories have received honorable mention in year's Best FS and Best War of the Year, co-edited the Mixed Genre Anthologies, Drastic Measures, and Wash the Spider Out from Blueberry Lane Books. He is the author of 10 fantasy novels, including Lady Changeling Trilogy and the epic Arctic fantasy series, Elena's Way. And then Lorraine Shine is a New York poet and writer, and her work has appeared in Strange Horizons, Vice, Terraform, uh, Syntax and Salt, and in the anthologies Aphrodite, Terra, Tragedy Queen, stories inspired by Lena Del Rey, and Sylvia Plath, and Spectral Lines, poems about scientists. I'm Lancelot Chauvert, and uh, to spare you, you can see my bio online. Um, I am so glad you guys are here. This is a weird topic. So because it's a weird topic, I'm gonna take just a little bit longer to kind of frame it up so that uh, we can speak to the question really well. Um, we're essentially talking about the meaning of magic and the meaning of magic systems. So philosophies, worldviews, metaphysics. Uh, in almost every instance uh, where an author has a magic system significant to the story, including like mind control in the matrix, similar things, they're showing their cards in terms of their own personal metaphysics, their belief in ultimate reality, personal worldview, or their views on ethics, morality, politics, some other minor concept. Uh, so we're going to explore why they chose it, why they seem to believe um, through their magic systems, or what they seem to believe through the magic systems, whether it's true, whether it's beautiful, those sorts of things. Um, I'll quote, uh, just a quick quote by uh, George MacDonald, and then we'll turn it over to the panelists with kind of some, uh, some examples of this. Uh, George MacDonald has an article, in, uh, it's called the, the Fantastic Imagination, and it's at the start of uh, one of his, uh, he wrote a bunch of children's stories, uh, and the best stuff that he has are all of his intros to his children's stories, they're these like uh, framing up of what he's doing. He says that the natural world has its laws. He's talking about magic systems. And no man must interfere with them in the way of presentment any more than in the way of use, but they themselves might suggest laws of other kinds, and a man may, if he pleases, invent a little world of his own, with its own laws. For there is that in him which delights in calling up new forms, which is the nearest, perhaps, he can come to creation. 
When such forms are embodiments of old truths, he calls them products of imaginations. And when they're in, in, inventions, however lovely, we call them the work of fancy. Uh, so he's saying it's a good thing to invent new laws, invent magic system. Uh, but it, he goes on to say that in the moral world, you actually can't uh, break morality because you end up, if you end up saying, bless you, if you end up saying that bad men are good and good men are bad, uh, you actually mess with your reader and you, you're being inconsistent with the sort of world you created because you're not being honest about your metaphysic. So we might look to Philip Pullman's um, Dark Materials, uh, where he tries to kill God. He's an atheist. Uh, uh, Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn novels evoke much of his own Mormonism. Those are the sorts of things we want to talk about. So I'll kick it over to you guys and, and see uh, what you think in terms of when has this shown up where the, the meaning of magic or the author's personal philosophy or those sorts of things have come clearly out in that. Which side yeah, just go. Yeah, you can start with Alex if you want. We can go down the line. So, I'm going to be the contrarian on the panel. Uh, I do not believe that in most cases uh, the magic system has much to do with the author's uh, personal belief systems. I feel uh, it's much more of an artifact, it's much more of a clever artifact that helps you drive the plot forward and creating a unique and interesting magic system can also create opportunities for your characters and your plot to do things that you have not already read in 20 other fantasy novels. Uh, so I, like I said, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of be, you know, wh why, why, why do we read, why do we have magic systems, right? Like, you know, if you're reading a fantasy novel, uh, the world has to be in some way different than our own. It could be slightly different, as in uh, magical realism. You know, it could be different in a way where the characters are completely fine with it and they've never, they've, they never question the magical elements of the world. Uh, or it could be the discovery book. It could be the, 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 the through the portal book where the characters show up and they're like, oh my God, magic is real. This thing is happening. That thing is happening. All of these are plot devices rather than the author's subconscious attempt to, uh, to, to sort of hand you a pamphlet of their personal beliefs. And, uh, and we can argue the point throughout the panel. Sure, yeah, no, that's great. Um, well, in contradiction to that, I don't think um, an author has to necessarily uh, um, consciously have their beliefs um, influence the magical system, but sometimes it does. Like, for example, Ursula Le Guin in her earlier work did not consider herself a feminist at all, but as she identified herself as a feminist, her later work changed. Um, uh, in example, for, um, the point of view of Tehanu and her later work was told from uh, more of a feminist um, character point of view. So I think um, it's not always the case, but often if an author's political views change, uh, that may be reflected in their writing. Um, and Ursula Le Guin is one example, I believe. Yeah, well, two, two sort of obvious examples that come to mind of uh, writers who put their metaphysical beliefs behind their magical system. And, and Alex is right. Most often, that's not the case. But uh, we could talk about the ones where it is the case. <coughs> Probably H. Uh, Ron Hubbard, or L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> Um, though I haven't read many of his books, and C.S. Lewis is pretty much the, the guy whose Christian beliefs kind of manifested in his magical world system. Picking up on the, uh, the Christian end of it, you know, 
Yeah, sometimes it's definitely more, you know, on a superstitious level like that. It's, it might not be some large overarching, you know, uh, systematic theology about why we're doing this. It's, you know, it's a, it's a superstition tangentially related, but it ends up affecting, you know, some type, some type of magical control of the world or, or that sort of things. To speak to, to what Ken mentioned with Lewis, you know, Philip Pullman very openly said in, in order to react to uh, the way Lewis did that he wanted his, his atheistic philosophy to come out in the Dark Materials ser- series and so basically engineered an entire magic system in which the attempt was to kill God. Now it's, now it's a similar thing with the Robert Jordan stuff uh, but Brandon Sanderson comes along and he's a Mormon and he writes a very similar sort of thing. I'm not a Mormon, but he, he writes a very similar ser- sort of thing um, where they kill God and it doesn't do what it does in Philip Pullman's books because that is technically a demiurge. And if you read through the Mistborn series, it's very fascinating because it gets more and more Mormon as you go along, like with people like literally owning planets and these sorts of things. Um, you know, I'm curious to see, uh, kind of like what you mentioned, is are there instances where it might come out subconsciously where maybe they didn't, maybe they didn't, like Alex said, create an entire you know system based on you know Latin classic words like Rowling. Um, but but it starts to show up like some of my personal beliefs have come out in the in the ways that I'm articulating the magic or just the fantastic nature of this world. So there's got to be a reason, right, why so many of the fantasy books uh, rely on the Judeo-Christian mythology, whether we happen to believe that to be a truth or whether we basically just look at it as, oh, look, it's a really fun, well-developed mythology and it's just as fake as every other mythology, but I'm going to use it in my books. Uh, And I think that 
part of that is all the work is done for us. Uh, our readers, you know, you guys are reading these books. You're familiar with the same concepts from the Bible, the same concepts, uh, you know, from uh, you know, you know, from this uh, culture and this mythology. So it's a shortcut. I don't need to explain to you what the biblical concepts are. When I'm inventing my own mythology. I have to do a lot more prep work. I have to give you that background. I have to give you the myths. I have to really immerse you in that. And that's not a bad thing. Sometimes that's, that's part of the fun of crafting a book. But if I want to create a system that you're already partly familiar with for various reasons, for example, in a short story, you don't have nearly as much time to develop the mythology. So for the shorthand of it, I can use the mythology that already exists, uh, you know, be it voodoo or, uh, or, 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 or Judaism or, uh, you know, or, or, or anything else. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that these are the things that I believe or particularly, um, you know, care to, to use in my daily life. Hmm. Did you want to take questions now? Yeah, you wanna... yeah we can take some questions. Or do you wanna... um, yeah, what do you got, Phil? Uh, I was just wondering, since you brought that up, Alex, are any of you familiar enough with non-English science fiction to know that if most of the science fiction writers in India are drawing in the Hindu tradition, That's right. and if most, of the, if most of the writers of fantasy in the Arabic world, for example, are drawing upon the Arabic uh, tradition, in other words, is is your audience, if your if your author and your primary audience are member of are both members of culture A, then the mythology of culture A is going to be the default setting of the stories that are done. So there's an enormous number of fantasy novels in China that are based on uh, the Legend of the Three Kingdoms uh, and also on the mythology of the Monkey King. So those are obviously things that are as familiar to the reader in China as uh, sort of you know uh, Judeo-Christian mythology is familiar to us. Um, I don't speak Chinese, but I can tell you what, that a lot of fantasy in Russia is going to be based on, on, on Russian mythology and Russian fairy tales. And I think that's perfectly natural because again, you're speaking the same shorthand as your readers. Koshe, Koshe the Deathless. and you know, like, I mean, certainly those are the more popular characters, but once you're a part of that culture, you know, Koshe is just a character that Americans know. Sure. But there's so what many are some more. Others? Um, well, Baba Yaga and Koshe are the two that, okay. that Americans know for the most part. But there's a lot of this. Zmeigorinich is probably like one of the greatest villains. In, and so the Zmeigorinich literally means, you know, the fiery serpent, and it's the dragon with three heads. And that's a common villain in Russian mythology. I've, I've used... And Godzilla movies. <laughs> and Godzilla movies. I've used them in my novels, I'm not going to lie. Uh, there, there are others, uh, but also the heroes as well. I mean, you, know, you have the, the tropes of the hero's journey that, that, that Campbell talks about. Mm -hmm. When you have uh, you know, a character... So in Russian fairy tales, it's always Ivan the Fool who goes out and, and, and is forced to face the world that he's unprepared for and deal with these bad guys. Mm -hmm. And so that trope survives into Russian fantasy novels much more often. So you have this character who is not already a hero, not already, a, you know, it's just, just a, a guy who is sort of, you know, below average in his abilities. You know, he's, he's a level zero character. A schlub, yes. Uh, so that, that trope is, certainly survives from the Russian fairy tales into, mm -hmm. and I don't want to monopolize the conversation, so I'll let somebody else. Yeah. Pull it close to you, please. Yuji Foster 
was, um, I believe, Chinese, and a lot of her stories uh, really picked up on a lot of that mythology that you probably would, you can look up her stuff. Unfortunately, she passed away very, very young. Um, she has a lot of work out there. Yeah, even even Spirited Away kind of does that, and it's a, it's a Spirited Away is an interesting mashup because it's got all of these Japanese mythological references, but then as an American, you watch that, and it's like, man, they're just pulling from all of these European cultures. It's like, yeah, that's what cultural appropriation feels like <laughs> on the receiving end, <laughs> like like that, you know. But it's but it's great. Yes. Yes, yeah. Porcio is a better example of that, actually, yeah. I think, than the spirit of the way. Sure, yeah. There, there are multiple instances of that. Um, and I, I, I like it, too, because it's, you know, there's this interesting parallel between, you know, Japanese spiritism and, and some of the Neoplatonic references, early medieval, um, that are kind of teed up and very, very similar in some ways, which I think uh, Brandon Sanderson is in some ways dealing with in his Stormlight Archive. Um, uh, what do you think, Lorraine? Did you have something to add there? Um, I was thinking about the writer Rachel Pollack, uh, who has written um, her books drawn um, Jewish mythology and the Kabbalah often. And because she's also um, an expert on the tarot, she uses um, magical imagery from the tarot and many other cultures in her work. And that makes it more interesting to me because she's not only drawing on... Um, Western religion and Judaism in particular, but also all the various um, magic imagery in the tarot for many different cultures um, are incorporated in her stories. So, I don't know if anyone ever read Rachel Pollock here. <laughs> you, you said you had something you worked on, right? Yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, whatever culture you're in, whatever language you're writing in, you tend to write in that framework. But uh, we're seeing a lot of writers now going to other non-Western uh, mythologies and working with them. It's been pretty much a trend over the past 10 years, it's a very good trend. And you know, I was telling Lance, I have a, my Alana's Way series, it's a five book series and it takes place in a fantasy world based on Inuit mythology. So, um, these magical systems based on shamanism. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, it's, it's a very mystical type of a, of a system that's quite different than, than what we're used to. In, in uh, Inuit people, and, and this takes place around the year 1900, their belief is that everything has a soul. So every rock, every river, a lake has a soul, everything has a soul, and not, it's not just uh, human beings and animals. And so the shamanistic uh, magic system is, as a shaman, she can communicate with all of these souls. So she will ask the rock, you know, to do something, to shape itself a certain way. And it may do it or it may not. Uh, it, she's not forcing it to do it, she's just asking it for a favor. Or she'll ask the wind to blow a certain way and it may do it or it may not. So uh, what, why, why I found that fascinating for a, a hero is, you know, she's not having the power, 
She has to convince them to do what she wants, so she has to have a good reason for them to do that. In other words, you know, please blow this way, I need you to help me. And she really can't use it for anything horrible or bad because then they just won't do it. <laughs> yeah, which kind of, that's a similar sort of thing with the Spirited Away and the Neoplatonic stuff with, with Sanderson, yeah. I think, are, are there as well. Um, I find it interesting, like what, you know, what Alex uh, mentioned with uh, Joseph Campbell, um, you know, he mentions in there that, that mythology is kind of the way we say this is what it means to experience humanity. This is what it means to live out the sort of things we uh, believe. You know, I, I feel like every time I read Campbell, I like either absolutely agree with him or absolutely disagree. And there's like no in between. <laughs> so like it's, 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 it's a fascinating encounter every time. But, um, but he's really, I think he gets that. And I, th- I think he gets what stories are up to, right? Um, Robert McGee, who wrote the book Story, said that uh, stories and art first demonstrate and then prove points without explaining them. And I think sometimes we don't even know the points we're trying to make, and we have to like re-encounter our own work later. Um, but I, I did think of that with Campbell. You had a question? Um, not so much a question as a uh, thing about um, everything has got a soul and will respond to you. What I wanted to ask about really was metaphysics that goes beyond or maybe below religion. It's not about you know what is the what is moral and who is in charge so much as is the world fundamentally hostile and you have to fight and control it? Is the world fundamentally kind? Is the world fundamentally ruled by a higher power you have to appease? Is the world fundamentally patterned and ordered and logical? Is the world fundamentally just a, one big thing of which you are a part and you have to cooperate with it? I think that really the the, the magic systems and all their picks. Um, what they reflect about that frequently does have something to do with either how the author really believes the world works or how the author wants to say, okay, what if the world looked like this? Wouldn't that be cool or wouldn't that be horrible and how they portray it? I think they'll tell you what the author thinks or what the author wants to, is asking maybe more than telling. Yeah, no, I think, that, I think that's exactly right. I think that's kind of what I'm getting at is um or curious to explore like mk jameson you know is if you look at the way her series progresses and what's possible and impossible who can use magic like those sorts of things kind of tease up some of those opinions but the reason i mentioned philip pullman is uh you know i like his work but he doesn't he's not answering any of the classic philosophical categories that he thinks he's answering so the things that he's yeah, so, so, but, so he thinks he's interacting with this large philosophical tradition without understanding basic categories and ends up making kind of a fool out of himself, I think. But um, do, you, do you guys have any uh, interaction with that, with like maybe a novel ended up being a little more political than you thought it was going to be going into it or, or those sorts of things that she... So my favorite novel uh, in, Russian, in the Russian language is uh, called The Master and Margarita by uh, Bulgakov. It has been translated. The Master and Margarita. Margarita? Yes. This is, it's widely considered one of the greatest novels of the 20th century. It's been translated into English by several separate translators, so there's options available for people to read it. Um, it also invents magical realism about 30 years before Gabriel Garcia Marquez <laughs> thought of it. Uh, now, in this book, 
Bulgakov uses, again, religious mythology and sort of, uh, you know, the, the plot of the book partially revolves around Satan coming to Moscow in the 1920s. <laughs> it's like a reverse uh, Dostoevsky. It's sort of. Uh, it, it, and, and the thing about it is that this is a giant allegory for how Bulgakov feels about the, the communists taking over the, his, his, you know, his country and, and what they're doing to it and how horrible these things are, except for he couldn't publish that because there's some such things as censors available. So a lot of it had to be really shoved down deep. And so talk about the politics of the author coming through. Oh, wow. um, not only was he relaying his worldview through this book, but he had to do it in a way that wouldn't get him thrown into a gulag. Mm. So this is, there's a lot of really subtle stuff in there. And the book is both hilarious and, and deep at the same time. That's good. But it's done in a manner where a person of average or below average intelligence will, will miss all the subtext intentionally. Mm. So, uh, so, that's the, so there's a master class in how to hide your, uh, how to hide your beliefs in plain sight. Mm. And, I, and I highly recommend that as, a, a, as an option. a lot of that in Russian literature, probably. Yeah, there is. Um, and Ursula Le Guin uh, had anarchist um, interests, and that is reflected in The Left Hand of Darkness, yeah. for instance. And Huh? And the I mean the Dispossessed, right. Um, and some of her other books also. That's good. But a lot of times the author's intent is not exactly what it's perceived to be. And I, I can give an example. Um, my most reprinted short story is called The Ghost Elephants of Kinesia. And it was in fantasy and science fiction. And it's about uh, a herd of ghostly elephants you know, haunting the, the poachers, pretty much. And, you know, so I just thought of this concept. Oh, <clears throat> ghost elephants. Nobody's written about that before. What would the story be like? And it became about, you know, extinction, and they didn't want to become extinct, and, and, and so on <laughs> and so forth. And, uh, I want to meet the guy who wants to become extinct. <laughs> right. But, but, <laughs> but stories in, uh, you know, fantasy and science fiction get reviewed by all the magazines. So the magazine's uh, reviewers all started referring to me as this big, uh, you know, new voice on, uh, on, on green writing and, and uh, you know, uh, conser conservation. And, and I, I, meanwhile, I'm thinking, I just wanted to write a story about ghost elephants. I wasn't trying to do any of that. So. The curtains are blue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. And I was like, well, should I embrace this? Should I, like, you know, just make this my thing? Uh, but... Well, that's it. Let, really. let, me, let me drill into that a little bit. So at what point is it acceptable for the author's intent to lead us even deeper into something they did not intend but could, could resonate with a reader? And could, they could look at it and say, yeah, yeah, I could see how you could move that. Like at what point does it actually move beyond the author and become part of the fandom and, and the sort of shared experience? Well, it's nice when fiction can be interpreted different ways. Uh, and sometimes you do that intentionally, and, and people will see in it what they want to see in it. That's a really nice thing, and it's not really what you're trying to force a perspective down on them. Sure. Yeah. yeah. The, the hallmark of a good story is that to allow us to do that. I, I think the story has to be pretty simplistic for us not to be able to kind of uh, process it with the information that we have around us versus what the author may have had around them a hundred years ago, right? So this mm -hmm. is true for Mark Twain, this is true for any classic works that are, uh, that are surviving and thriving today. 
So I think that that, you know, the ghostly elephants thing, if people find the metaphor or, you know, find the allegory for, uh, for conservation movement, you certainly won't have a problem with that, right? I mean, like, you know, it's fine if that's what they choose to see. And by the way, I have to say that Lawrence Schoen has written two novels about ghost elephants now, so he must have you to think. You know, I actually, uh, when I had this in mind, when I suggested it, there's a great article by the philosopher David Bentley Hart called A Perfect Game. And it's about the metaphysics of baseball. Um, and, he says, and he says that meaning is kind of like the diamond where author's intent is that intersection of like right where the batter's swinging the bat. And t- fair territory is infinite. But there is foul territory. And there are things that you absolutely cannot mean with this. Uh, do you think there's a time where someone says, hey, this is what it means. And it's actually the exact opposite of what the author meant. <laughs> I think that happens. <laughs> Lorraine or Carol, do you have any? Sure. It's not really fiction. Yeah, I think when when you say that, I think of I think of Tolkien saying, "This is not a World War II allegory. It's not." You know. Isn't it though? I mean, <laughs> well, see, this is the thing, right? <laughs> Isn't like well, here's the thing. Like, you know, you you say yourself that subconsciously we, uh, you know, the world around us influences. Us. Sure, sure. And so surely the events of World War Two have influenced Tolkien's thinking. Sure. As has sort of like the deforestation of England and all the other factors that were involved there. So. He may not have intended it as a World War II allegory, but for us as readers who know anything about his life history, we can't separate that from the fact that he, he was in World War I and he lived through World War II. Sure. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a legitimate thing. Is, is, so there's an author disagreeing, and then there are times where meaning is the opposite, like, you know, like Rowling and, and, and saying, you know, Rowling saying, uh, Wiccanism just leaves me cold. Well, you know... Maybe she's aiming at something completely different. Um, yeah, you got a question. Um, a contribution. Orson um, Scott Card's Ender's Game has been reviewed as a stirring tribute to the military and as a scathing indictment. Wow. <laughs> yes. Wow. Really? Yes, it has. Which is third. Did they did they get to the end? So someone had a hand up for me. Yeah. I, yeah. I was wondering if there's any time you guys wrote a story. You intended it one way, and in terms of where people have come with other um, insights to it, when you reread your novel, that it revealed something about yourself you had not suspected once you read it. And it's like, oh, I didn't know I was going that way, and, and I should really explore this. Anyone else? something, it was sort of just, uh, it was actually the first book in the Unfinished Business series, and when it was done, I realized it was, a, not only was it the character's journey, but a lot of it was my journey, and um, it felt a little strange that I didn't intend that, but when it ended up that way, that's that's what I saw in it, 
people would say, there's a lot of you in here. And I said, yeah, there is a lot of me, but that's, that character is not me. But I think, you know, my, my experience spans all of the characters in the book. Yeah, a lot of writing is, is subconscious, and you don't even realize what's influencing you. It just seems perfectly natural to you to write something, and you don't realize that it's coming from you know, something you've experienced or some trauma you've had or, or whatever. And you can go back to it many years later, probably, and, and then realize, oh, yeah, I was talking about my first wife, you know, or uh, <laughs> things like that. So I think so much of it is subconscious, just things that you put in there because they feel right to you. But wh why do they feel right to you? It's because it's coming from something that you're thinking or something that happened to you. Um, yeah, I agree. Um, but also, how do you write when you really do believe in magic is the question I've been mulling over. Because um, mm. most people, when they put in their magical systems, they don't really believe most of the time. But some writers do. Um, I think some writers tend to believe in that more. Would you put yourself in that category? Uh, yes. Oh, can you explain that a little bit to us? Um, no, I can't. Because <laughs> <laughs> I can't because it's something I'm struggling with. and um, We can help you. I don't think you can, actually. <laughs> um, it's something I'm struggling with because uh, the tropes of fantasy don't really adjust something that is unknown somehow. Um, so I don't think, I, I haven't found any solution to this. If anyone has one, please let me know. So, so in many of my non-humor stories, uh, I tend to tackle the subjects of religion and many of my characters are, uh, are religious characters for various religions, not, 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 not one in, in, in specifically. And uh, I knew that, of course, but what's been pointed out to me when the first collection came out, and again when the second collection came out, by multiple reviewers, is that they, they, seem, they say, well, you can't make up your mind. Is it a good thing to be a religious person? <laughs> or is it a terrible thing to be, to be a religious person? Because when you read some of my stories, then people draw their strength and much of their goodness from their faith. And when you read my other stories, the religion really screws them over. <laughs> so, it's just like real life. Yes. And, and so they are like, well, maybe you can't make up your mind about what you think about religion from that. And I, I, don't, I don't believe that to be the case. But multiple people have brought it up, so it has to be considered. Well, maybe because of your experience um, living in Russia, you know, um, you would get that dual problem, um, sort of. You know what I mean? being Jewish and all that. Yeah, but I mean, I, I will never in my life say, oh, communism was really good. Right. Like, just because I lived, you know, or socialism was not really good. I lived under that. that system. I will, you know, that, that, that doesn't mean not. I'm, I'm going to write a story where that, 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 that says that's a good thing. No, no, but no. I will write a story that says religion is good, and then my right. next story will say, oh, religion is horrible, it ruins lives. Right, right. So. Yeah, it's, it is a tricky thing. Like, if you're going to be accurate to the human experience, you've got to be accurate to people like living out the best or worst of a given uh, topic. I mean, to speak to the, to the magic piece, there's a great book written um, uh, mid-century, um, 20th century that said, uh, it starts out, the only person I ever heard uh, who saw a ghost, who, who thought she saw a ghost, didn't believe in them. 
And, mm-hmm. and his point is there is actually something that happens logically a priori um, that even if you're confronted with all the data of magic, mm-hmm. like sensory experience, right. but you have logically concluded that such a thing is impossible, mm-hmm. you will reinterpret this through your biases. Uh, well, of so course, and of, cor- a, of course, this culture is um, geared toward not believing these things, and um, and so if you do believe it, it's a problem. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I don't, I don't know that I have an answer for you, but I think it's a, it's no a one question. Does. <laughs> yeah, what you got me? I, I was just going to say that um, in the books of magic comics by Neil Gaiman. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly that thing happens. I don't know if anyone else has read it, but a magician is taking a budding magician on a tour, and they end up in a car with someone who does not believe in magic, mm. and explains how every time he's looked into it, there's always um, a mechanical, rational, materialist explanation. Always. And, and he has encountered things that they know to be yeah, so there's, yeah, that's that logically, you know, prior assumption. Uh, there's a great play um, by G.K. Chesterton called Magic. And in it, everyone, all, there are six characters. All of them have a perspective on magic that's different. They're all arguing the whole play. A real magic trick happens that none of them can explain. All of them are wrong as to the cause of it. And then, like, one of them goes crazy, one of them dies, like really bad things. It's a tragedy, like most plays. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a fascinating examine of kind of this, this dialogue because all of them have very different opinions and they're all wrong. Um, yeah. Uh, did you have a comment? Oh, okay. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, not that particular. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, sure. For Lauren. What I've seen and what I think authors tend to do. Scott Card is one where I've looked and I'm like, really? I'm pretty sure you're touching on things that are actually accepted beliefs. You exaggerate. You tend to take this kernel and say that you know is true, even if others don't, and you just build in such a way that you exaggerate. So you can then still treat with respect to what you do believe, but to make it fantastic. Oh, um, uh, but um, uh, this is an. Ex- I think it's an experience that's very internal and um, and very mysterious. So um, uh, true, you could build around what you you know can't, people commonly use the tropes <coughs> and things like that. But um, um, and it's just something that's. I think if anyone believes in this kind of thing, it's very internal and it can't be proven in a scientific way. So I don't know how you would uh, build a system around. I mean, of course you can use the tropes of fantasy and such, but um, but it's not really addressing what uh, I have experienced. So. Well, so that's the problem. Technically, Freddy Krueger is a pretty internal experience, you know, with the <laughs> nightmare recurring over and over. It's, it's, you know, dream sequences and things like that. Are, are so the, the alien bursting. Well, yeah, that's it becomes very, an external that experience. Is, yeah, it's yeah, the transition well, between... Inter- well, like, even more than that, so... Sure, sure, sure. Uh, well, I meant yeah, in terms of utilizing it to write about. Right. Um, but that does bring up something that 
Alex kind of hinted on. Have you guys ever seen someone use a magic system or a metaphysical artifact or whatever um, that they did not believe in quite clearly and for one way or another started dialoguing with it? Um, dialogue? And you mean in their... In their Just interacting with it in a way that's friendly or hostile or... Okay, well, uh, so this is, this is sort of twisting your question a little bit. Yeah, twist but, it. Uh, Take it. Run one on. of the tropes of magic systems uh, that I always find a little bit of an issue with is that for some reason we have to know exactly what the limitations are and how the magic system works. Mm. But in real life, things don't work that way. That's true. If you are a strong person, you don't come with a stat bar where it says you can lift exactly 143 pounds. Right? You don't know how much you can lift. On one day you can lift 143 pounds, on another day you can lift 90, right? Mm -hmm. So in one of my novels that I was working on, I actually kind of came, came to grips with that, where people have a general idea of how magic works, but they can't quantify it beyond the general. They can't go, oh, you can cast seven fireballs, and if you draw the circle, then you can cast seven and a half fireballs. No, it's the same thing. <laughs> you have a certain amount of strength and eventually you will get exhausted and you will no longer be able to do magic until you rest. But you don't know exactly how much magic you can do. And that's a trope that I, I mean it's a really fun trope because it's so much fun to come up with those systems, right? With those like D&D &D type systems where this is exactly how this works. Mm -hmm. But very few things in real world work that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's part of uh, what I was trying to get at too. A lot of this um, it's fun to come up with the systems, but I think probably the way it works is that it's not a system. <laughs> Something like that. So. Yes, what you said about, um, you know, an author taking an object and, and not really understanding it, uh, occurs to me that a lot of spiritual concepts are used as characters. Like a lot of people will write stories or books with the devil as a character. Mm -hmm. And they don't really mean it in the, the religious sense. Uh, it's just like a common trope to sure. have this guy as the devil running around and making deals with people and screwing them over and whatever. <laughs> or also, but they don't really mean it in any religious context, really. Right. Or, uh, you know, the Greek gods get, get thrown around, or even a, a really successful example, the mighty Thor, right. where they take something that actually was somebody's religion I mean, really. Yeah. And they're just making into a comic book character, which I like for, but <laughs> if you think about it, it's, it's weird. Yeah, it is kind of. Do you have something, Carol? I, I just spend an awful lot of time uh, writing and then having um, the people critique who are saying, well, you have to get this to conform to your system. And it's like, you know. It's, it's fantasy, you know. You have to, yeah, you have to have some some idea in your head of the metaphysics of it, but it's it's a fantasy. Mm -hmm. And well, this goes against this system and that system. It's what I know, but it's 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 a fantasy. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't find that in readers. I find it in the editing process. I had to submit, I had to change an editor on one book because I don't believe that you that this could happen. And I said, mm -hmm. under this system, and I guess she was a practitioner of that system, and she just didn't believe it. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, but well, you know, this is this is a fantasy, mm -hmm. you know, and it doesn't, it wasn't written to conform to any system. So I, I ha again, I haven't had that from the reader end of it, 
they accept it or they don't, they believe in ghosts or they don't, and they, they think this is, this is ridiculous or it's not. But she, she was arguing with me on the basis of her belief system that this could never happen. Mm. And yeah, I don't write that way because my character sort of, you know, I yeah, think. Like everyone has their limits. Like I believe in witchcraft, but I don't believe in aliens. I believe in ghosts, but I don't believe in, you know, elves. What? Vampires. Vampires, you know. So um, people do have their biases. Yeah, I don't think Bram Stoker believed in it. You don't have to believe in it to, to write it. Sure. A lot of times. Can we call him? Yeah, sure, sure. Let's go. Um, Uh, which one? <laughs> just, just, just that. Just the one that. Oh, just like, yeah, do, do people kind of tee up something in order to dialogue with it or react to it uh, that they don't believe in? Um, okay, so it's not. I was thinking of a different type of system that wasn't magically based, but the effects seem magical. Like what? Like, like in uh, Warehouse 13, where like the different artifacts that they had to deal with mm. that made things go. It wasn't magic, it was just the personal energy of another individual affecting, you know, the world around it. Right. Whoever the original owner is. Um, yeah, that... I'm, people not, like, it's not magic, it's just the energy of a person and how it's affected that object. It's semantics. Well, technically, yeah, so that, that's kind of the gets into, like, what is a magic system, right? Well, it's like, well, the matrix isn't a magic system. Well, technically, it is because it has rules, it has things that operate. Um, and, and ends up playing on outside the matrix and affecting things that aren't inside the matrix. So, you know, yeah, that's absolutely a magic system. But that kind of gets, you, you know, your comment there kind of gets at what Carol was getting at, which is um, soft magic versus hard magic, uh, which is a great couple of episodes on writing excuses by Brandon Sanderson, Mary Robinette Kowal, Howard Taylor, Dan Wells, uh, many other writers contribute to it, um, about just this. And it's like, you know, Essentially, their conclusion is to the degree that it's relevant to the story is how much you need to explain it. But if you're not going to explain it, you're not going to um, be able to use kind of in a Chekhov's gun sense, like, you know, in a, in a very systematic way. And a, and a great example of that is the monkey's paw, uh, which gets to kind of what Alex was pointing at. We have no idea what it does at the start of the thing. <laughs> we have no idea what this thing is. It just seems like a kind of a you know, trashy heirloom or whatever, like, um, someone makes a wish, it comes true. Then they get excited about it, right? And then they make another one, and then, like, the worst possible thing, you know, they can imagine happens. And so that's, like, it's like soft magic. Um, you know, another example, uh, kind of like Alex was saying with the, the consequences, I'm actually working on a novel right now that, that started out thinking of, you know, if Narnia happened to adults who don't believe in Narnia, <laughs> or if, if, you know, Platform 9 and 3 quarters happened to adults that don't believe in Platform 9 and 3 quarters, what would happen? Well, we have bad effects to, like, jet lag. <laughs> so, like, they cross this threshold and immediately, like, nosebleeds and they start vomiting and, they, you know, like, they just, like, it, bad, bad visceral reactions to crossing these thresholds. Uh, but that's not, like, again, not a hard system. It's just, like, a thing. So... Uh I was going to say, for research, you should uh, read or watch The Magicians, because oh, they oh, really? cover that a lot. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Um, really? I, okay. I imagine like several of those hands that went yeah. up were going to say that, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I've never encountered it. Oh, so. it's... What's the name of that? Ta- um, Thomas Covenant the Unbeliever. Stephen R. Donaldson. This is like a classic of like, this isn't happening. I'm going to do a horrible thing. It's kind of like the Westworld effect. Oh, it's just a robot. Gotcha. Yeah. This is this is a thoroughly unpleasant book, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the warning. <laughs> sure. We had another question. I think there were a couple more over here. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Science fiction writer dies and goes to Dante's hell. Oh, that's fine. And fun. for the yeah. first several chapters of it, he is trying to figure out what kind of bizarre future he has been cryogenically frozen to look <laughs> Because obviously he's not in hell. Hell's not a thing. That's awesome. It's well, and that kind of gets at that. That gets at a modern assumption about magic and metaphysics, which is Dante was a sci-fi writer. He uses a very specific gravitational effect when he reaches the middle of Satan's belly button. For one, for two, he wasn't writing about Christian theology first and foremost. He was writing about his personal conversion. It is a. It is very clearly from a first-person perspective in a similar line that Virgil was writing in, and he's moving forward as he's going through his personal thing. So that even that is a, is my personal experience of this thing. And yeah. It's also very much in dialogue with the metaphysics of what's going on. Yes. Yes. And at the time. So yeah. And compiling Italian and several other benefits. In Jim Butcher's Dresden Fire series, there are a group of knights of cross who have magic swords which are powered by the nails of the cross that Christ was crucified on. The first night of the cross that we need is a very devout Catholic, Irish Catholic guy, Michael. Second one we need is a Japanese member. Uh, the third one is a Russian who is actually an atheist who's, magic, who's wielding this magic sword powered by one of the nails of the Christ crucified. I don't believe in this this, could, this might all just be hallucination, or there might be psychic powers, or there might be something completely different that we're just, that everyone else is just interpreting as this religious artifact. But it works, so I'm going to use it. There's the opposite where if you're accosted by a vampire, in some stories you have to believe in the cross in order to repel a vampire, yeah. and say if you're you know, a Muslim and whatever, and, we gotta like, repel the vampire with the symbol of its religion. That's right, you carry a guitar for Jermaine from Flight of the Conchords for what happened in the mummy. The mummy of the cat. Yeah, yeah, in the first movie of the, mo- the Mummy, he's trying to drive the mummy back. And he kept the pulling out the cat. No, he pulled out the cat. He pulled, oh, he pulled, he pulled out He pulled out item after item until he pulls yeah, out the star of David and starts speaking Hebrew. Oh, yes. And the mummy recognizes him, at, him as speaking the language of the slaves. Right. And but, so then... Right, but later on, when they're tra- in town... I remember this time. And the mummy is cow- more powerful than he's almost complete. And they're trying to repel him from taking a girl, all of a sudden a cat walks in and he just flips out and runs away because the cat is the symbol of a fox. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, this is now something more powerful. Yeah. Oh, 
I, I was going to say, if I ever drive into a place that has vampires, I'm just going to get one of those coexist stickers because they got everything. On. You just have it plastered to each other. We got a question back. It's the concept of the teddy of the teddy bear protecting you, you in your dreams from the monsters, right? Well, it could be it could be that, or it could be the nature of faith per se interacting with these things. At which point you're saying, "I'm looking beyond the physical," uh, which a vampire or a mummy at that point is an extremely physical entity. Yeah, his, his faith is kind of imbued in the same way. Anything that's really dear to you is a possible icon. Yes. You can also defeat vampires by informing them that the moon just reflects the sunlight. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, what we got? Um, in that same vein, in the sort of anyone who's still the Blade series, we kind of went on its own little tangent. Uh, there's uh, part of the uh, one of the <laughs> one of the uh, latest books. Um, the, uh, Anita has to uh, repel this uh, this vampire that's possessing this man's body, and the the, the man is in the hospital. The uh, doctor who's treating this person is a vampire, but he's an atheist vampire, and he is not affected by her cross glowing um, because he's an atheist. But he uh, but her faith is something that she is using as a weapon. And uh, as a, as a weapon to repel like evil, but the the any what what's, what's addressed in this, in that particular book is that any evil that doesn't believe in Christian God is a little uh, not really affected by it, hmm. and they're more affected by like something that is from their particular time or era or something or maybe some type of magical element that is also brought into that. That's interesting. And, and the way you talk about it, too, kind of reminds me of the different rings within the Green Lantern series, you know, like how willpower is differently affected, which is similar, similar magic system. But yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Well, yeah, sure. Um, this whole conversation about, uh, so there, there, there's a thing in the mythology of vampires that a cross will ward off a vampire. And then you have the different metaphysics of why does a cross ward off a vampire? Does it ward off a vampire because of the inherent sacredness of the cross? because of Jesus and God. Does it ward off the vampire because of the vampire's beliefs and its fear of the sacredness of the cross? Does it ward off the vampire because of some inherent metaphysical power of faith and it has to do with the wielder's belief in the cross or whatever belief symbol? Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. Is it just holy symbols in general? Right, right. And if it's holy symbols in general, is anything holy believed to be holy inherently holy? Um, and so there's all these different benefits. It's about how do you believe the world works.
Yeah. How does that affect the world and how does the world affect Yeah, please, please. Or is it a thing that exists independently of anybody's happening? Or is there something else entirely? Or the non-faith based theory is that it reminds them of cemeteries and it reminds them that they're actually dead. So it's a psychology. It's a psychology. It's psyching out the vampire. I think it's also important to remember that there's a lot of other ways in which we nerf vampires other than the cross. Uh, in Chinese culture, uh, they can't go past, like if somebody just drops a bag of rice, right. they have to count all the grains of rice and they can't. So, oh, you know, man. In, in my series, the you know, yeah. in my series, the vampires have OCD. I mean, they're just, they have serious OCD and so they're math nerds. They use that they like counting, so, so they run a hedge fund. <laughs> no, I mean, this is, this is, this is in, my, in, in, my, in my books. Did you get that from Sesame Street? <laughs> yeah. I've made that joke in the book. I didn't get it from that, but I've made that joke in the book. All right, hold on, guys. I'll get to one second. I want to just kick it over to Carol and Lorraine real quick, see if you guys had anything in the midst of the... Well, the holy symbol fray. Uh, I'm not a fan of vampires. I prefer fairies, so I can't really speak to vampires. I wrote that story. <laughs> no, you just pretty much got to kiss it. I have some fairies and vampires, even though I don't... I, I like fairies better than vampires. But I don't... I still have to write a book. I'm not necessarily thinking about... I mean, the system's in my head because it's in my head. It's, it's what I but I just want to tell a story. And when I get to a point where I'm having a showdown or some sort of you know, pivotal moment, of course I have to come up and say, okay, I have to have some basis for how this works within the system that I'm using. Mm. And it may not, you know, I had to have this one thing where um, how the moon was affecting, it was moon phases. I went into more of the astrology end of things rather than crosses and so, you know, I, I think that I set out to tell a story and I let the story develop and a lot of times the characters themselves sort of solve the problem. I know that sounds kind of strange, but they sort of, the way they act, because they act consistently by that climax in the book, sort of, okay, yeah, that, that's still something she would do. He would never do something like that. It's mm -hmm. very out of character. Or maybe it's good to be out of character that's the turning point for that character. So, um, you had a question at one point, Bob. Um, I was just, I don't know if anybody else has read any of the Wandering Files in here. Yeah, um, that, is, that is a magic system where the vampires are just an outcome of the magic system. Like, you, the, the best and longest lasting wizards are likely to become vampires because it involves sucking a parasite into your brain that will eat other people's brain instead of yours. Um, and it is all an outcome of higher mathematics and multidimensionality. Uh, <laughs> As one does. <laughs> like you do. Yeah, your files are HP Lovecraft metaphysics. Wow, okay. But crossover with multidimensional math and the advent of computers are making the stars come. 
Since we mentioned fairies, and uh, we we're talking about the crosses and vampires, the whole iron and fairies thing, yeah. the reason why, I, why they're allergic or, 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 or could be defeated by iron is, again, it goes back to Tolkien and back to the, those kind of stories where it's all about uh, the land, the forests being cut down, the land of the fairies being diminished in, in favor of the human realm. So you have that situation where you know, we're, we're cutting down the forest, we're putting the fields, we're putting some you know, minor technology, and that's where that... The, you know, the whole mythology of the Fae uh, comes from and why they're vulnerable to iron. Hmm. Of course, in, in, in my writing, I had to work on that, and I'm like, hmm, well, we're getting to the point where technologies that we're using for, for, you know, for, for high-tech don't really use iron anymore, so that means that the fairies can start using that stuff. Yeah. Great example of that is Fern Gully, actually. Uh, we're very, very clear uh, sort of uh, political metaphysical biases coming out. you have anything to add to that, Ken? No, not particularly. Okay. Any other? Uh, yep. So I, when I started writing a few years ago, um, I realized that I want to take my mind just At first, I was uh, building off uh, the standard D&D tropes. And I realized, no, I need to get more creative. Then hmm. I want something real. So I started reading all bunch of medicism, neoplatonism, medieval magic, contemporary magic, Renaissance magic, mm -hmm. and astrology. And I started trying to like build magic system out of that that was supposedly more realistic because mm -hmm. it's not like the real world. And then I kind of realized too, like for the topic here, that eventually still my own Judeo-Christian biases were slipping into this. Like it, and then when hearing about like right now other magic systems, like, oh yeah, like the Chinese have their own magic system, the Russians probably have their own. Mm. I think it's a little hard to like, realize for myself, it's a little hard to extrude myself fully from that, mm -hmm. then I realized, okay, it's, you know, it's still, it seems to be dramatic, useful. Yeah, no, I think it, I think it's, you know, as long as you're aware of it, and then interested in interacting or dialoguing with other systems or those sorts of things, I think, I think it's perfectly fine. I, um, you know, there was a, the Fraser wrote that golden bow, you know, about a hundred years ago or so, and wrote a bunch of stuff about sympathetic magic that was rooted in voodoo. Um, and Rothfuss has leaned into that real hard um, uh, in the Name of the Wind series. So you've got voodoo, but it's also caught up in quantum entanglement. And it is used by some of the most malicious characters in that series. Now, it's very, very systematized, but it's, it's interesting how, how cruel some characters can get uh, with voodoo mixed with quantum entanglement. Um, yeah. Also, Carol made an interesting point about the magic system serving what you want to do with the character or what the character does. Like, if, you know, like most fantasy, almost fiction is based on your character development. You know, your character has a journey. And I think that the magic system in the book has to serve what you want your character to undergo. 
Maybe you want a character who wants to improve his intellectual ability or her intellectual ability. So their mastery of the magic system is the mastery of the intellectual skill. Um, you know, maybe you have to have an empathy to, to do magic. And so your mastery of magic is improving your empathy and at that you become more empathetic character. So you kind of want, uh, to, you might want to tie the type of magic that the character masters or wields to how you want your character to change through the storyline. Like, you know, like in a, in an unbeliever kind of story, and I don't think it's a spoiler to explain that, Thomas starts as an unbeliever, but he kind of ends up believing because wielding the magic, you know, causes him to realize that he's changed in his mm. belief. So um, I think that's kind of what I, you know, it's not just a cool magic system. You have to have character development. Yeah. And I can see how you want the serving of the system to develop character. In Harry Potter, uh, Harry um, gains skill, but he also gains some courage. Right. Through each book, he encounters another challenge that tests his courage and um, and his, and the love of his mother um, to support him. Um, yeah. Here's a question connected to that mm -hmm. and, and, and this. Do you think that the magic system or narrative element of a story um, shows the ability or stat pool bias of the author themselves, you know, of their, of their own personality bias? Well, I think that we're, we're, we're coming full circle to what we started with, right? And I, and I will reiterate the point that, I, no, I don't believe so. I think that it's a convenient uh, plot device. You know, so if you have a magic system that works a certain way, that may be very convenient to put the characters through a certain uh, rigorous thing or, 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 or just to advance the story. It does not necessarily have anything to do with what the author uh, actually believes them, themselves. Well, I but it can sometimes. <laughs> yeah, because the things you choose to write about, whether you know it or not, are going to be influenced by your belief system. If you look at the total oeuvre of a writer, you can, you can ferret out what, what they're all about, usually. But you can't, can't really conceal it. I agree. I think that, you know, we all have our own beliefs, and that's what we choose to write. But I think, for me, and I think for most authors, at some point in the story, whether it's a one book or a series, the characters start to take on their, a life of their own. One advice I got from uh, developmental influence was because uh, I was basing my my characterization on astrology. So you do have to do a chart of all your characters. You do a full astrological chart of all your characters, so you know a lot about them, and you know what their weaknesses are, what their strengths are. You have to move toward your weaknesses, and then your other your villain, your hero, your heroine, they all have to have weaknesses that the other one can then play into. And that sounds very scientific, and it is very scientific. It takes out eight hours probably to do a, a full astrological chart, and I do it on all my characters. And it really helps advance the story, and at some point it becomes, it's, it's their story, it's not mine anymore. And I know this character would never do this because I've got a chart. And I have the, uh, in a, you know, and again, I'm using lots of other systems. So I, for me, it 
much work. I may start out with a particular idea or theme of the story, but it may, the way the character begins to express that can sometimes be like, I didn't expect him to do this. Now I have to work this into the plot somehow. Resolve it. That's, it's interesting because it's like, it kind of makes me wonder if, you know, you could build entire magic systems. Like, this is an extroverted magic system, an introverted magic system. Oh, and, you know, like Meyer Briggs magic, but, uh, or something like that. But I, I want to drill down a little deeper. We, we're going to have to wrap up here in about five minutes, but I want to drill down a little deeper into what Alex said because I think it's interesting because he has an experience that I don't, I don't know that I've exactly had, but, but growing up in, in a communist context. Do you think there's a difference between propaganda and someone having an interesting dialogue with ideas? Because you're, you know, pretty solidly sticking to the, you know, no, they're not conveying ideas. And I, and I think that's a, I think that's a legitimate question to ask, and the danger of that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's entirely possible to to write propaganda as fiction, and we've seen this. Uh, certainly, we've seen that in Eastern Europe a lot. Uh, and we have seen writers sort of lean into that here as well. But those books are t- typically less successful because as readers, we want characters who question the belief systems. We want antagonists who, who sound realistic and their opposite view sounds like it could be plausible. And so when you're writing propaganda, you're much less inclined to flash out your antagonist and make their view, worldview uh, plausible. And that makes for a weaker book. So I think that that's uh, you know it's something that we've been certainly exposed to growing up. A lot of the Soviet science fiction was written in a setting where oh communism has won, and there is like a small conclave of evil capitalists that still need to be defeated, and they're bad in every way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's just not interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's great because people are just people are just messy, you yeah. know. And that, I think it, I think it's great that you embody that and in, in giving due diligence on kind of both sides, multiple sides of an argument. And it sounds like your readers have picked up on that. Um, so I, I hope that we can all, you know, lean into those Ivan and Alyosha debates and those sorts of things that accurately represent um, both sides. Um, I would mention um, Dr. Cirilla uh, wrote a fascinating piece on the soft magic side of things in of Gods and Globes um, that is... Um, he has a very scientific encounter with Saturn, and then something goes wrong. Most of his team dies, and then weird magic starts happening. Um, and it's a lot on this metaphysical theme. Uh, any last comments, guys, before we uh, wrap up here? Any last questions? I saw a hand up, I thought. Uh, yeah. Where do you think this is going? Because there, you know, there are so many magic systems now, so many great stories that evolve. What have you seen that 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 technology? There's no way you have we're going to use these things. I mean, Star Trek is still up flip phone, which I had in the nineties, right? The Actually, that next generation they have smartphones and they were inspired. Like the people who built smartphones, it's the phone patterns. Yep, I had one of those. What's the code? Any sufficiently advanced systems? Any sufficiently advanced science? What what is it? Any sufficient? Well, I'm not talking about people. So, 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 so,
as a panel here, as, as this half of the panel, we wanted to, to bring this back to the quote by Arthur C. Clarke. Guys? Hey, guys. <laughs> so we wanted to bring this back to a quote by Arthur C. Clarke. Any, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And the same is true of the, of, of, you know, so of, of, of the magic systems that we're talking about. Uh, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know how technology and how society is going to change. But we know that we're never going to run out of stories that we can tell. It's just impossible. I mean, there's, there's infinite, infinite storylines, and they all come down to the same human emotions, as, as I like to call them in my writing, legends of love and loss. That everything comes down to that. And so, in just in one way or another, and, and we, we, we can put different suits on it, whether it's a magic system or an enormous uh, Death Star blowing up Alderaan. But at the end of the day, uh, they're all stories about you know, people, whether the character has you know, three legs or seven. Yeah, go, please. I think I think the piece of, uh, you know, two cent advice I'd give to your brother is, you know, um, I I like playing with etymologies and especially root etymologies of simpler words, and sometimes I feel like we lean so hard into the specifics of technology that we forget there are things that aren't going to change. So if you use the verb I called him, you don't need to explain on what, uh, and that kind of kind of gives you a little bit of a cushion in terms of technological advance. I just wrote a story not too long ago called Womb Rovers, and that gets, it was just a combination of two very simple words, the womb and roving like traveling. Um, and I wanted to give due diligence to my mom, you know, carried me for nine months. And, and I just came up with this thing where people basically kill themselves meditating on conception on another planet and end up traveling into the womb and coming to full term, like nine months full term, uh, and being born immediately. So they travel by traveling through wombs. Um, but that all, that all came out of toying with etymologies and toying with two words that are normally not connected together in any sense, traveling and, and wombs, roving and wombs. Uh, and I think that can yield some interesting uh, you know, playing with root words like that can yield some interesting technologies and magic systems, things like that. Uh, we are out of time. Uh, please give a hand to these panelists. They've been great. Uh, <laughs>